0: Pastor Scott and lead pastor of the river, and really glad that you're checking out our uh, online podcast and our services. And hope that you are blessed by this. Certainly, if you have any questions, if you're wondering about stuff that goes on here, or maybe you're checking out our website more and seeing things that you Uh, are wondering whether or not you might want to participate in them feel free contact us in the office give us a call send us an email Um, we'd love to hear from you love to answer any questions that you have Uh, we hope that you are blessed by what you hear on on this podcast we hope that God's word continues to have power in your life and we pray that uh, God makes himself known that you know how much he truly 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 loves you thanks for checking us out And uh, enjoy the service. Uh, We're going to walk through Romans chapter 11, uh, 1 through 10 this morning. We um, continue through our series in the book of Romans. Last week, uh, if you remember, we talked about election. This week, we're going to continue that dialogue in some different ways and even speak of some of the challenging questions that revolve around election um, and how we understand it Uh, as we gather around God's word together. Let's um, ask for... Uh, the Lord's blessing and presence in our time. Let's pray. God, you are good. You are good to give us your word. Good to give us your covenant, as we were reminded this morning with Benjamin. Good to show us your healing and your presence in Leona's life and in Herm's life. Good to show new life in Noah and for Garrett and Aaron. You are good in how you show us yourself in your word and you expose us to truth and power in your word lord we pray that you use that power this morning to move us transform us more fully and completely into the followers of jesus christ that you call us to be i pray for those who are here who do not know you through your grace and lord you will move powerfully transform thus that they know Jesus, that maybe today is their day for an eternity to be altered forever. Father, um, you do your work, and we'll just hang on for the ride. We pray this in Christ. Amen. Romans chapter 11, beginning at verse 1. I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin, appropriately. Um, Now remember, this is Paul speaking. And Paul has just given us a whole discussion of the elect and how it comes through grace alone. And now he's coming back and talking a little bit more about how the people of Israel either fit or do not fit into an election of grace. Um, What that really means. So that's the context in which Paul is speaking this morning. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what scripture says in the passage about Elijah, the Old Testament prophet, how he appealed to God against Israel. Elijah said, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left, and they are trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I've reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. What then? What the people of Israel sought so earnestly they did not obtain. The elect among them did, but the others were hardened, as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see, and ears that could not hear to this very day. And David says, may their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see, and their backs be bent forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. For those of you who were alive in the 50s and 60s and early part of the 70s, you know that that was really a time of turmoil in uh, the history of our country and our continent. Um, I was not alive then, but even just reading history books, and for those of you who weren't alive, then be informed. It was a time of turmoil. There were lots of challenges and struggles within the culture of the United States and North America that were being addressed and sort of altered at the time. People, of course, had been coming back. Soldiers had been coming back from World War II and it ended in 1945 and adjusting to this new reality. And in this new reality, the struggle for civil rights was certainly at the forefront of a lot of people's minds. And so you get the rise up of protests and a a lot of different groups and a lot of different causes that were being addressed at the time. And so we get people like uh, Cesar Chavez, and we get people like Martin Luther King. And it's interesting because these individuals who really, their voices were given rise in the 50s and 60s and 70s, um, their voice is still very much... Uh, apropos for some of what it is that we struggle with today in terms of um, the struggle between cultures and what it means for us to live in a culture of um, acceptance, love, and um, mutual benefit. Cesar Chavez, of course, was born in Arizona. He was a migrant work worker. This was an individual who knew the toil and the turmoil of being in a field and taken advantage of by those for whom you were employed, uh, employed by, and he, he knew what it meant to not get a fair wage for a fair day's work. He knew what it meant if you were an illegal immigrant and how people would take advantage of you because they knew that you had no legal standing. And because of his voice, as well as many others, things have changed within migrant society and migrant labor society. And certainly, much of it is for the better. People are treated with much more dignity. There is uh, certainly a sense in which Uh, The image of God is affirmed in other people that wasn't before the likes of Cesar Chavez became a part of the dialogue, and even today, as we know, the dialogue that we have within our culture about what it means for um, the migrant population, both legal and illegal, to live and work and be engaged in our culture, these voices still have impact. Now, I don't want to get into the politics of it this morning, but I just want to highlight how powerful some of these voices were. Certainly, Martin Luther King, the same way. Growing up in the South, in the 50s, in the 40s, knowing what it meant to experience bias, knowing what it meant to be rejected or even experience violence at the hands of another because of the color of your skin. And as he and others around him began to speak, especially into pacifism and what pacifism meant in their movement for a struggle for civil rights, he certainly has something to say to us today. As we know from the headlines in our local and national papers, there's much for us to continue to learn. I would say that easily the I Have a Dream speech has got to be in the top five speeches that this country has ever heard about what it means for us as a culture and a society to live together. I want to highlight, though, that these people had voices. Why? Because they were from within. Cesar Chavez knew what it was like to work in a field, Martin Luther King knew what it was like to have to move to the back of the bus or to move out of a restaurant, because it was not a colored restaurant. These were people who could speak to a culture and to a context because they'd lived it. And this morning, Paul is seeking to speak God's transformation into a culture that he knows well because he's lived it. He's been the Jewish person who thought what so many other Jews that he's writing to are thinking. He's known what it's meant to live within the context of law and observance, to live into the rigorousness of festivals and and what it meant to think about cleanliness and dietary laws. In fact, so much so, and he was so good and talented with it, that he had become part of the religious elite part of the synagogue and temple rulers. And because he was part of that segment of Jewish culture, which was vehemently and strongly for the law and what it meant, he wanted nothing to do with this Jesus. Wanting to nothing to do with this new, what was called at the time, the way. The way that Jesus had brought to the world through the cross and his resurrection from death. Paul wanted nothing to do with this. In fact, he thought no one should have anything to do with this. Thus, he became a persecutor of the church. So that's the context in which this text and all the text of Romans comes. Paul knows Jewishness. He knows it well, knows it passionately. And in verse 1 through 6, we get him affirming that God is still at work in the Jews. God is still active among the Jewish people. And Paul is an example. We understand Paul was that Jewish person, and on the road to Damascus, the Lord met him. Jesus spoke to him and said, Paul, why are you doing this? Stop it. Don't do this. Be changed, be transformed. So God is still at work in the Jews, taking them from unbelief and faith and trust in the law to a faith and trust that comes through the grace of Jesus Christ. Paul is an example of God's power in the Jews. And as Paul is trying to help people understand what he's talking about, he brings up the story of Elijah. And he's referencing the Roman Christians to a time when Israel's faithfulness to God excuse me, was in question. Very similar to the context in which Paul was talking about. Because remember, Israel is not considered faithful by the church to the way. They don't know the grace of Jesus Christ. They deny the Messiah. They're the ones, in fact, who had a hand in crucifying Jesus. And that was very similar to when Elijah was around and Elijah said what he said to God. Well, what did he say? He said, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars here's the key phrase, I'm the only one left and they're trying to kill me. And what does God say to him? God says, I've reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. God has been active in the Jews. So even as Paul might look out and say, these Jews do not know the way, or as other people in the church might look out and say, well they're still in their old ways, they're still in their old understandings. God, they are not part of God's people. God is in essence saying through Paul, hold on here, wait a minute. I do my work in my time, not yours. I use my understanding, not yours. It's in my way, not yours. Remember that. Remember that, Paul. Remember that, Rome. Remember that river. And then we get here this beautiful image from verses 5 and 6. Let's read those together. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant among Israel chosen by grace. Verse 6, powerful verse. And if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. Listen to this statement. And ask yourself the question whether or not you can believe and affirm this statement. Behavior is not a prerequisite for grace. Hear that again. Behavior is not a prerequisite for grace. How many of us can affirm that? Can you affirm that? there's a struggle, right? There's a part of us that wants to say, Okay, grace, yeah, totally a gift to God, but... This little area. I don't know that we can say grace shows up there. The the child abuser. Can we put a flag in that spot and say grace doesn't show up there? No. Because if it were based on works, then we could. But it's not. It's based on god's decision well what about the homosexual transsexual what about the person who has rejected god completely and pursued a lifestyle that seems to be counter to what it is that god's word says it doesn't matter if that's any sort of lifestyle can we put a flag in that and say this person has rejected god they want nothing to do with him they don't know his great guess what There's tons of those people who come to know the grace of Jesus Christ. Paul is one of them. We also know that God is who God is, and he can show up in the impossible places. Why is it that we want to put flags in certain places and spots and say God's grace can't go there? That's a human standard that we use. And Paul is affirming here in chapter 11 verse 6, no way. Don't do that because then grace wouldn't be grace. If you could put any condition on it, you could put any standard in there and say that that's a place where God's grace, God's love can't show up, then you are making it, you're making it something it's not. And that's not being a follower of Jesus. It doesn't affirm who God is. God shows up anywhere, everywhere that God wills according to his plan and his purpose. The problem is, is we alter the message of grace. We make it something it's not. We make it conditional. And we may not make it generally, but we can certainly make it specifically. Think about your family Think about the relationships in your life that are difficult. That family member who just can't get their life cleaned up. And they've messed with you and your mom or your dad or your family so many times. And you've tried to give them chance after chance after chance after chance after chance. And they just keep messing it up. And you say, until until you go down this road, No. And the problem is that God never has an until in his sentences. The only until in his sentences, until I will it. Until I call. Until I show up. So for us to see the world that we live in, whatever world it is, with eyes of grace that is not conditional, is what we're called to here in this text from Romans chapter 11. Then we get this in verse 7 and 8. And there's some complexity here. while well, we're talking about election. So if you're looking for simple, sorry, you picked the wrong day. I could have done better, maybe a better job for Mother's Day. But sorry, that's just what Paul has given us here in Romans chapter 11. Verse 7 and 8 say this. What then? What the people of Israel sought so earnestly they did not obtain. The elect among them did. But the others were hardened as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see and ears that could not hear to this very day. There's a couple words there which I hope at least give you a little bit of pause because they have me and they've forced me to wonder and ask a lot of questions because we get into one of the big struggles in understanding and embracing election. Here's my question. Does God in his will... Harden and condemn some to see, some to not see or understand His grace. What do you think of that question? Does God in His will harden and condemn some not to see and understand? Let me read verses 7 and 8 again. What then, what the people of Israel sought so earnestly they did not obtain. The elect among them did, but the others were what? Hardened. As it is written, God gave them what? A spirit of understanding? A spirit of love? A spirit of extraordinary knowledge? No, he gave them a spirit of stupor which I'm not even sure what that is. Maybe my wife can tell me because I know I'm there sometimes. (laughs) Eyes that could not see and ears that could not hear. To this very day, does anyone read that verse of Scripture and at least have a question or two? What does it mean for a God of love to say, I harden you, I give you eyes and ears that are blocked and unable to hear me or see me, and guess what, you're stupid. How do we feel, how do we think about a God like that? How do we think about in terms of who God is as a God of love? I don't know about you, but I gotta be honest If I'm going to talk about God, and if I'm going to talk about his word, I need to be honest about what his word says in its full and complete message. And this is part of the message. What do I do with it? Well, it's interesting. Because Paul made some interesting selections in what he said and how he said it. Verse 8 is a quotation of Scripture from what Testament? Old Testament. It's actually a combination of two texts. comes from Deuteronomy 29. Turn in your Bibles back there. And the other part comes from Isaiah chapter 29, verse 10. Turn there as well. So you're looking for Deuteronomy chapter 29, And then you're also looking for Isaiah chapter 29. This is one of those keep your fingers in your Bible sort of sermons. Has to be, otherwise we're not going to have an ability to engage with what election and what Paul is saying about election here this morning. Uh, Deuteronomy 29, what's the context for it? Well, Moses and the people have just, they're just getting ready Just getting ready to enter into the promised land. And before God does something big like that, he often does this. He does what is called a covenant renewal process. So this whole thing, this this part of the text is coming in a covenant renewal. And what we read in Deuteronomy 29 verse 4 is this. But to this day the Lord has not given you a mind that understands, or eyes that see, or ears that hear. Well, what is, what is Moses talking about there? What is God talking about? Well, look back for a moment. We first of all have him, it starts in verse 2. Your eyes have seen all that the Lord did in Egypt to, to Pharaoh. What did God do with Pharaoh? We had plagues. We had an extraordinary movement of God's presence among his people. We had locusts and Nile turning to blood. We had fire from heaven. We had frogs. We had cattle dying. We had firstborn killed. We had all the stuff with the Passover. Pretty crazy stuff. I imagine if all of a sudden fire rained from heaven, it would have an impact on your understanding of who God is, right? I mean, I hope so. But then we're not done yet because then we're also talking about people who've gone out of Egypt... To where? The Red Sea. Now think about the Red Sea. Red Sea, you get a parting of the water. We're still not sure how all that works, what goes on there, but we do know that God led his people out of Egypt from slavery into freedom on dry land through an ocean that shouldn't have moved, but it did. Walls on either side, all of a sudden miraculous, you can get away. I imagine that that if that happened to you, you went to the Pacific, and suddenly there was a dry way for you to drive over to Hawaii, it might have an impact on your life, as well as your vacation plans. It didn't change them. They didn't see it. They didn't understand it. They didn't get it. But then you you also get this. In verse, what is it, verse 3 or verse 4, it says, Hold on, not only that, but in verse five, during the 40 years that I led you through the wilderness, your clothes did not wear out and nor did the sandals on your feet. I have pairs of shoes. No, let me say it this way. I have a son. My son Troy has shoes. If they make them four months, it's miraculous. It's miraculous. 40 years of the same shoes on my son. Are you crazy? That's not gonna happen. Well, these people experienced it. You experienced the trials and tribulations of the plagues. You you got out of Egypt through the Red Sea, and now you've got like the super-duper clothing from like Back to the Future that laces itself up and keeps itself clean. The awesome stuff, you know? You got that now, and you still don't believe that God has shown up in your life? God showed up constantly, and they were unwilling to see. So finally God says, fine, I seal up your ears, I close your eyes, because I gave you everything of me, and you listen to nothing. Isaiah 29, Isaiah 29 says this, it's in verse 10, this is where it starts to get a little freaky about what Paul does. It says in verse 10 this. It says, the Lord has brought you over brought over you a deep sleep and he has sealed your eyes, the prophets, and he has covered your heads. And this is one of those judgments of the enemies of, of God, the people who have um, over and over again worshipped Baals, worshipped idols, done things away from God's plan and purpose for who they are as a nation. Isaiah is bringing that judgment upon them. But again, read within context. What else does he say here? Read verse 13 along with me. It says this. These people come near to me with their mouth, and they honor me with their lips, but what? Their hearts are far from me. Read that again. These people come near to me with their mouth, and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Want to see something extraordinary that Paul is doing here? Turn back to Romans 10, verse 10. Keep your finger in Isaiah 29, 10, 10. What does it say there? It says this. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. What do we have back in Isaiah 29? We have people who are putting on the show. They're putting on the show of being part of God's family, of acknowledging God with their mouth. But what? They don't have hearts that have been transformed by the truth of God. God has shown up. God has made himself known. God has loved. And these folks have said over and over and over again, we will not acknowledge you as Lord. In our heart of hearts, we won't let our lives be changed. And God says, then your hearts are hardened and you are away from me. Election is not about God simply making a decision that is random Or without any understanding of who someone is. God shows up in lives over and over and over again. God is a patient God. God has been active but constantly rejected. His patience with his people and with us is extraordinary. And finally he will say, I take myself away from you. God is long-suffering, but also God is a God of justice. And then we read in 9 and 10, and David says, May their table be a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. Again, it's about context. This psalm, Psalm 69, is a place where Paul does a couple, or where David does a couple things. The first thing that he does is he prays and asks that God might show himself and protect those who are part of his family, but he also does something else. You're going to learn a new word this morning if you don't know. It's called an imprecatory psalm. Say it with me. Imprecatory. An imprecatory psalm is simply this. It's one of those psalms where the psalmist will say, Lord, come and destroy. Lord, make yourself known through destruction and judgment. And David is making an imprecatory plea before God that people who are against David would be dealt with justly. Remember what David's name is before God. David, a man after God's own heart. Romans 10.10, a heart changed. David is that guy. The rest of the enemies of David, not so much. God has made himself known. But these people in the Psalms and these people in Paul's day have simply said, no, we will not trust you. We will not follow you. And God says, and I close your eyes, stop up your ears, and make you stupid, because you will not listen to me. So what? Well, grace cannot and should not ever be qualified in human terms. It's only God's work and it's his alone. We never can qualify it. We can never put a flag and say not here or not there. God alone is the one who makes that call in his time, in his way, and according to his plan. And election is election, both to faith those who know the grace of Christ, and both to the rejection of it. God chooses those as well. But it doesn't mean that God hasn't made himself known to everyone. He always has, and he always will. He makes himself known at Mecca today. God makes himself known In Hollywood today, in Las Vegas today, in whatever context that you can think of where you may say there's a limit on grace, God makes himself known in that place and can do his work of the impossible in transforming his people to himself. God can and will do it, but he'll do it his way and in his time. And since election and grace are God's work and not ours, we can only live in the world where God has redeemed adulterers and murderers. That's David, the one that Paul quotes. He was an adulterer with Bathsheba, a murderer of Uriah. God redeemed him. In fact, he calls him a man after God's own heart. But he also called Paul, remember who Paul is, persecutor of the church, one who has imprisoned people who were part of the way. In fact, he held the cloaks Of those who stoned Stephen, the deacon. With him, with God, the impossible is always possible. Now, I didn't hit it when I was walking through it in verse 1, but I'm going to come back to it. Verse 1 says this about Paul I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. So, Paul is a Benjaminite. And the reason why Paul being a Benjaminite is impossible, or why it, why it is poignant, why it is important for this story, is Paul is reminding the people who would know, and we should know too, that being someone like Paul is, it means that God has shown up. Being a Benjaminite who now is a follower of Jesus means that God has shown up. Who are the Benjaminites? Well, remember the twi- 12 tribes as we heard already from Ben Mulder this morning. Then Benjamin was the youngest of the brothers and they received a parcel of land. It was uh, had the Jordan River on the east of it and it had uh, um, Israel on the south of it. And it actually bordered into the hills of Jerusalem. And because of that, they were in the middle of everything. And because they were in the middle of everything, they sort of... For lack of a better term, they played both sides against the middle sometimes. They actually ticked some kingdoms off. Israel and Judah, sometimes they actually jumped. They were with Israel and then they went with Judah. But that didn't go very well. In fact, Israel wanted to eradicate them, and they almost did. There were literally only like hundreds of Benjaminites left. There were almost none left. Why? Because they had been fickle, and they were judged for their fickleness. And then they go through all this stuff. Of course, we know the exile. They're taken away, and they're brought back, and there's all this stuff that goes on in the meantime in the uh, intertestamental history between the Old Testament and the New Testament that goes on. Benjaminites are still around, and Paul shows up. So Paul is a Benjaminite who shouldn't have existed because they all got wiped, almost got wiped out of the face of the earth. Not only that, but he is a Pharisee who rejects grace and the Messiah as being Jesus Christ and embraces the law. He shouldn't exist, embraces the law. And he's writing in verse 6. And if by grace then it cannot be based on works. If it were grace would no longer be grace. Does anyone see how ridiculous that is? He's a Benjaminite. He shouldn't exist. He's a Pharisee. He should embrace law and hate grace. And he writes in 10 words or less. One of the most beautiful definitions of grace ever. And advocates for it so fully and completely that his letters transform the church. Paul, being a Benjaminite, writing what it is that he writes is a reminder that God constantly is a God of the impossible, taking those who shouldn't exist, doing what it is that they're doing, shouldn't be living the way that they are living, shouldn't be where it is that they are, and takes them and transforms them according to his plan and his purpose for his glory to do something extraordinary in the world that they now live in. That's who Christ is. That's who God is. That's who he is to you. That's who he is to me. You know your story. You can think about the place where you started. You can think about the bumps in the road, the twists and turns, the brokenness, the sin, the consequence of parents and their decision, the consequence of others and their decisions, the consequence of your own decisions in life. And yet you sit here on Mother's Day 2015 hearing from God. God's word, the truth, that through the grace of Jesus Christ, according to God's plan and purpose, you are acceptable to him. You are called of God into his family. You are part of the covenant of grace that says, you are mine. I am yours. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Never let you go. You think about your story for a minute and you realize how ridiculous that is and you realize just how amazing God's grace is. It's who... God is fundamentally, and if he does that for us, if he does that for you, if he does that for me, how much more so can he do it in dark places, that right now we have a flag in saying, not there, Jesus, not there, and of course God ignores that flag and says, I'll go where I want, when I want, how I want, because it's mine. Oh,